Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The past two years of conservative government in Alberta have been marked by austerity and attacks on the working class. Jason Kenney and the United Conservative Party have come after teachers, nurses, and even the right to strike and demonstrate, among other things. Most recently, Kenny has rolled back all restrictions aimed at stopping the spread of COVID-19. In this talk, Comrade Larissa discusses how to fight Jason Kenny. I'll jump right into it. We, we talked a little bit in the last lead off, but Alberta has historically been uh, kind of a bastion of right-wing cowboy politicians, at least they'd like to think of themselves that way. Um, from Ralph Klein, Preston Manning, and Stephen Harper from Calgary. And now it's home to Jason Kenney and the UCP. Now Albertans, like we also discussed in our last uh, discussion, have gotten a pretty bad rap for being rednecks, Texans of the North, and at the end of the day, inherently reactionary. And as a Marxist in Alberta, I can assure you that this isn't at least completely the case. I promise that there are countless people looking for revolutionary ideas and genuine revolutionary change. I will say, though, there is a reason why we have this reputation. There are many reasons why Alberta is, is, is so slept on when we talk about a revolution in Canada. So as Marxist, as Marxists, rather, uh, as Marcus explained yesterday, uh, we view the political situation as flowing primarily from the economic situation. Not exclusively, but in a large part. So to understand Jason Kenney and how to actually fight the UCP, we have to go back to the conditions that allowed Jason Kenney to be elected in the first place. <clears throat> so by looking at these conditions, we'll see where this right-wing Albertan hick stereotype comes from and why it isn't universally applicable in the Alberta that we live in today. So if you know anything about Alberta, you know that the economy here has been very dependent on oil and the investment it brings for quite a long time. Uh, virtually no sector of our economy is independent of oil. When oil is up, other industries follow. There's this massive flood of investment, job opportunities. Generally, things are good. I mean, for the most part, at least for the capitalists. Um, when oil is tanking, on the other hand, everything else tends to follow. We see capital flight, huge job cuts, and layoffs across the province. So before the 2008 recession, things had been going pretty well for oil for many years. Uh, people relocated from across the country and beyond to snag this coveted oil patch job. And this is the time that's dubbed the Alberta Advantage. And it was this advantage that laid the foundation of the 44-year conservative dynasty in this province. All that really changed in 2008, though. Marx taught us that things inevitably turned to their opposites. The tides turn. And this is because capitalism is a system in deep crisis. It's due to this, these myriad of internal contradictions, but most primary of them all, the crisis and contradiction of overproduction, which, again, Marcus talked about in more detail yesterday. So when these contradictions grow too large for the system to compensate for, to kind of cinch in, they outgrow the restraints that capitalism has attempted to impose, and the situation changes very quickly from boom to bust, which is exactly what we saw in Alberta during this time. 
So the 08 financial crisis was the worst that the world had seen up to that point. And while Canada didn't suffer as much as the U.S., the crash really pulled the rug out from Alberta's key economic lever, oil. In April of 2008, this was before the crash, uh, Ed Stelmack's conservative government predicted a $1.6 billion surplus for the following year, a prediction that was revised just four months later uh, to an $8.5 billion surplus. And this was based on increasing oil prices at the time. And we kind of know the rest of that story. Lehman Brothers collapsed and financial firms toppled one after another like a line of dominoes, causing oil prices to drop with them. So in light of this, uh, that original surplus, it, it was revised to a small deficit and very quickly to the largest deficit in the province's history. Investment in the oil patch was slashed by half from $20 billion in 2008 to just $10.6 billion in 2009. And the political implications that we deal with today are flowing from those economic conditions. So the crisis that was going down in Alberta oil, it revealed and deepened existing cracks and differences within the ruling class itself. In Alberta, the oil barons are, they are distinct from the rest of the ruling class, um, especially when things are not going well. When oil is booming, the interests of the ruling class are generally more unified. It's like a what's good for me is good for you kind of a situation. But when commodity prices drop through the floor, the boss is really solidified into two camps within the Conservative Party. And this was based on disagreements about how that crisis should actually be dealt with. Now, normally, these different layers or stratas or ideologies of the ruling class would be organized into their own parties. But in Alberta, it was essentially a single party state. So these different sections had to be expressed through the Conservative Party. There was nowhere else to express these differences. The oil capitalists, they wanted cuts and austerity to foot the bill for the crisis. While the other capitalists, the, the, they were represented by Stelmack and Redford, they didn't want to provoke the working class and upset the social order, which is honestly a much more far-sighted and enlightened position for what it's worth. This internal division, it did eventually lead to a split with the oil barons abandoning the conservatives to prop up a party of their own, the Wild Rose Party. And even though both offshoots were conservative, the Wild Rose, they attacked the progressive conservatives, the PCs, uh, for being left wingers. They called them red Tories. Uh, when Stelmack proposed a review of oil royalties, he was called Hugo Chavez of the North, which is it's a little dramatic for my tastes. So, <coughs> The Wild Rose was growing in popularity, but the Conservatives still maintained control of the government. Uh, 2008 was followed up by another crash, though, where oil prices took another nosedive. American oil production had been increasing. Uh, Chinese oil demand was decreasing. OPEC refused to cut production, and then prices ultimately fell. And this had even more disastrous consequences for our economy. It's estimated that around 100,000 people were laid off in the oil patch, and this really shows that the most devastating, brutal effects of capitalist crisis are shouldered by the working class every single time. People lost their homes, they went into debt, the opioid epidemic exploded, and the suicide rate climbed 30% in 2015, the year after the crisis, and a further 60% in 2016. So after decades of being the richest province, yet spending the least on social programs, after years of cuts, years of rule from a PC party that attacked and blamed workers, Alberta broke this curse and actually voted the NDP. 
Now, it's really important to emphasize that this wasn't just some sort of accident. It wasn't a fluke protest vote. It was the culmination of the enormous crises of 2008 and 2014, uh, to which Albertans were told to tighten their belts and look in the mirror to fix. The NDP, they promised no austerity, modest taxes on the rich, and a fair cut of the oil revenue. And this is exactly what Albertans were fed up with. It's what they wanted to hear. And at the time, it may not seem massive now, but this was a political earthquake. Uh, the media and the right wing went absolutely ballistic. There's stories that when the Conservative Party heard the news, uh, Stephen Harper's entire cabinet, they simply just like sat in silence. They were just completely flabbergasted that what they saw as a divine right to the throne of Alberta was not as secure as they had initially believed. The oil barons, corporations, the media, of course, they launched a vicious red-baiting campaign against this quote-unquote socialist NDP. And this election was one of the first indications of a general polarization happening in Alberta. People moving to the left and the right with the center almost completely collapsing. <coughs> in the U.S., we saw this through Trump and Bernie Sanders. And not only is there a polarization, but a complete distrust in the establishment just as a whole the establishment was quickly losing credibility, as was capitalism in general. So in a crumbling system, the working class people, they're forced into worse and worse conditions. Uh, people lose trust in the establishment in general, the media, the courts, the politicians, the laws. And at the time, NDP was an outsider. They were this underdog that was railing against the status quo of the conservatives versus the wild rose. Um, <clears throat> a couple of years down the line, uh, between capitulating to oil barons when it came to oil royalties and being forced to download the costs to the working class. At the NDP, they were trying to please everybody. Uh, they tried to reconcile the antagonisms between capital and labor. And they ultimately took on huge deficits. But they thought if they closed their eyes hard enough, um, the question of who will pay for all of this would answer itself. And as a hint, it didn't, and it never does. The oil companies, they were not satisfied and were prepared to show the NDP who really controls the province. And it's where the power lies, not in the legislature in Edmonton, but in these glass boardrooms of Synovus, of Enbridge, of Suncor, and Calgary. And they proposed an ultimatum. If you challenge our profits, if you try to get a bigger cut of the royalties, we will have no problem completely starving Alberta out. And this is really what set the stage for the NDP deciding to enter a competition with the Conservatives as to who could be the biggest cheerleaders for big oil companies in the province. Like, who asked them to do that? They weren't willing to threaten the profits of the oil companies, uh, which only left expanding oil production to increase revenue as their only option. And this is because the NDP had accepted the logic of capitalism. Uh, which led them only to trying to build more pipelines, specifically private sector pipelines that would be built in the cheapest possible way to boost royalty revenue, uh, despite the environmental impact and infringement on Indigenous land rights. Um, <clears throat> I don't know who else saw this, but I remember opening Facebook and seeing that infamous Valentine that Rachel Notley posted, with, like building a pipeline to your heart. And I just remember like groaning. It was so embarrassing, but you couldn't look away from it. And this capitulation was really uh, a defining moment, I think, for a lot of people of the NDP digging its own grave. They sold out the workers, the youth, their base in general for oil companies. 
And it was so bad, in fact, that Brian Jean, the leader of the Wild Rose Party at the time, was able to say that he didn't work for the oil companies to contrast to the NDP. So not only did they become the biggest defenders of the oil industry, practically begging the capitalists to not choose the conservatives over them, they handed out plenty of cold hard cash as well. This included $2 billion in an indemnity pool for Kinder Morgan, $1 billion in loan guarantees and grants to build new bitumen upgrading facilities, and a $1 billion stimulus to the petrochemical industry to diversify. All of these subsidies, handouts, these are things that have to be paid for in one way or another, whether it's the NDP or conservatives in power, be it by the capitalists or the working class through cuts. And surprise, we ended up paying for it. The NDP didn't implement Ralph Klein style or UCP style austerity, but there was definitely belt tightening. And as public debt grew, the NDP actually froze wages for 100,000 public sector workers. And when we take into account inflation, a freeze is always a cut. The thing is, no matter how hard the NDP tried to win over the oil bat bosses, how hard they tried to rally, they will never trust the NDP. <coughs> Doesn't matter how much they do, they will never trust them. It is a party founded by trade unionists and socialists and tied to the working class, even if those ties are a little, a little stretched at the moment. The only support the NDP can hope for is from the working class and youth to mobilize around a socialist program. So this really brings us to how Kenny came to power. Albertans were not happy with how the NDP was operating, as they shouldn't be, and the tides turned as rapidly as they did when they were initially elected. And this entire downfall of the Alberta NDP, it really demonstrates uh, the bankruptcy of reformism in general. So reformism, when there are reforms to be given, to be, to be granted, it makes a lot of sense. I'm a public sector employee. I would love some reforms. I'm sure most people would love some reforms in their life, but these kinds of reforms can only be granted when the going is good because the ruling class, the capitalists, they only allow those kinds of reforms when it doesn't impact their bottom line and they can afford to purchase class peace. Now, in this era of crisis, we have reformism without any reforms, which makes no sense. So the NDP did push forward some modest positive changes, but ultimately they ended up playing personality politics in the election. Uh, they went on and on about how reactionary and bigoted Kenny is, which is obviously true, I will not go against that, but it's essentially the same message that Hillary leaned on before losing to Trump. Kenny, on the other hand, was hammering home this message that he would bring back the Alberta advantage, the oil boom, the good economy. Like, he can't do that, but he promised those things. Um, it was exactly what many Albertans, broke and underemployed, wanted to hear. The NDP failed to push the province forward in a meaningful way, and the UCP was ultimately elected. And so began this UCP term, and it has been colorful, not in a good way. Uh, the UCP made promises that they could not deliver uh, due to the economic reality of the past three years and before that as well. There is no basis for a pre-crisis Alberta. The world economy has not picked up since 2019, and it wouldn't have even if we hadn't had COVID. Uh, 2019 was the lowest year for investment in Alberta in the past decade, uh, even with a global effort to implement the largest crude oil production in history. Oil prices have hovered at or below historic lows. Oil giants have also slashed capital spending budgets, 
In 2020, Suncor cut $1.5 billion from that budget, which is equivalent to more than 2.5% of all investment in Alberta. In April of this year, long-term unemployment in Alberta was also at an all-time high. And what does the UCP do in the midst of all this? Well, they've implemented austerity in the name of balancing the books, but at the same time, taken on enormous debt. Like, pick one struggle, please. Uh, the weight of COVID and the worst approval ratings of any premier in Canada have forced Kenny into a corner. He's at the whim of these corporate masters, but also terrified of a movement from below if he goes through with the most vicious of austerity. So from all sides, people are fed up. They don't want Kenny anymore, and these calls will only get louder. The 2020 budget, it was released before COVID uh, swept the globe. It was predicated on low taxes to attract investment. Uh, of course, low taxes on corporations to attract investment. Uh, spending cuts to balance the books and a very optimistic outlook on oil prices. They proposed cutting public services while giving billions in tax cuts to massive corporations. Um, <coughs> this budget was pretty much rendered obsolete with the pandemic. And to avoid rocking the boat too much in the 2021 budget, the UCP set the bar pretty low. They hope to mitigate disappointment. And it's interesting, this is quite a departure from Kenny's previously very loud, but very obnoxious calls for this fiscal reckoning uh, that was used to bolster and justify their austerity in the past. And while cuts are absolutely built into this budget, they've been forced to kind of pump the brakes on all out attacks. This is in part due to COVID, but also the public outrage at how the pandemic has been handled by UCP and Kenny in specific. So I did say that the UCP has been forced to retreat, pump the brakes, and this is true, but I should really say that the UCP, they just aren't digging around in the pockets of working Albertans nearly as much as they would like to be. These cuts have been brutal, numerous, and quite honestly scandalous from the UCP, uh, but they really really wish that they could be getting away with more right now. In their 2021 budget, they projected the second largest deficit in Alberta's history at $18.2 billion. Uh, suspiciously, they're not finger wagging at the NDP about balanced books and fiscal responsibility anymore. Um, they've also abandoned their promise to be deficit-free by 2023, despite what a good rhyme scheme that is that they had laid out in the previous budget. So, <coughs> Kenny has really been trying to scrounge together like shoestrings and buttons from the working class to offset uh, these unavoidable deficits since his election. Uh, to be fair, they're only unavoidable because the UCP refuses to make the bosses pay. But anyway, in 2019, uh, this began with cutting the minimum wage for young workers from $15 to $13 an hour, which also shows the, uh, the phenomenon of reforms under reformism actually being clawed back. This $15 minimum was implemented by the NDP and it's already being clawed back. Um, anyway, this was a move to gain favor from businesses so that they could hire more teenagers to work for a poverty wage in this backward attempt to uh, kind of claw back lost profits. Now this entire open for business plan, incredibly cringy name by the way, was a way to set the stage for an Alberta where bosses have even more power and workers have basically no choice but to put up with it. At the outset of the pandemic, however, is really when things started really coming down the pipe from the UCP. Uh, two weeks after all schools moved online, uh, which teachers found out about over Twitter, by the way, uh, the government announced a series of so-called 
adjustments to education funding, despite two weeks earlier claiming that there would be no cuts. Um, they said psych and ended up eliminating funding for substitute teachers, bus drivers, custodian staff, and educational assistants. Uh, they cited that these positions were not being utilized during online learning. Because everybody knows that kids stop requiring educational support, one-on-one -on -one instruction when you log into a Google Meet, right? So this amounted to around um, a 14% cut to base instruction funding and 51% to transportation for the, the province's education system. Um, also, in other terms, 26,000 layoffs, 1%, I will repeat, an entire percent of the province's workforce and the single largest layoff by an organization in Canadian history. It's really not a good look for the UCP as children were completely uprooted from their routines and would benefit more than ever from the support of highly skilled, highly trained and familiar adults in their lives. So despite promising that these workers would have jobs come September, many were not hired back or simply decided not to go back. All power to them, honestly. And the brain drain in public education, it's a ticking time bomb to say the least. So without even speaking to like the flip-flopping between online and in-person learning, which left already disadvantaged students, perhaps without internet or devices, just floundering, the blatant attacks on public education don't stop there. Uh, just days before Christmas last year, the UCP hijacked teacher pensions, passing a ministerial order that would funnel money into the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, AIMCO, everybody's favorite. So $18 billion switched hands from the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund, a fund which has managed those pensions since 1939 and delivered reliable gains averaging 7.4% returns over the last decade. I imagine I don't have to clarify this for pretty much anything in this presentation, but teachers, the actual stakeholders, they were not consulted in this transfer. And this understandably sent waves through teachers. Seeing as AIMCO invests primarily in more risky portfolios. <coughs> so teachers are quite rightfully worried that they won't see the same gains as they would with the ATRF. It's also highly suspect that despite being what the UCP calls an arm's length organization, uh, they're somehow heavily invested in the same industries that the UCP government is, uh, namely oil and gas. I'm sure just a coincidence. Um, not only this, but a report by Progress Alberta showed that every single publicly traded oil and gas company that AIMCO has invested in under the Alberta growth mandate has seen its share price go down since investment, even before COVID. Just last week, at a committee meeting to discuss AIMCO's underperformance on 2020 assets, which was just a 2.5% return versus the CPP, the Canadian Pension Plan's returns of 12.1%, AIMCO sent no CEO, no acting CEO, no chief investment officer to justify these weak returns and wasted of billions of Albertans' dollars. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar. There's like a story I read about like a chimpanzee that could throw a dart to pick stocks better than most people on the stock market. And I think that chimpanzee would have been a better choice uh, for managing the pension plans. But that's just my opinion. So... <coughs> The UCP has taken aim at literal children, professionals that have delivered world-class education in the province for years. Surely they've scrounged together enough money. They wouldn't go for struggling university students, right? Wrong. Obviously, it's not the case. 
In, tw in the 2020 budget, the UCP lifted the five-year tuition freeze brought in by the NDP, um, allowing for post-secondary to increase tuition by 7% per year. The budget also bled institutions funding with the U of A losing 44 million and the U of C close to 40 million. In their 2021 budget, 750 post-secondary jobs have been slashed, tuition is going up, tuition tax credits are cut by $225 million and interest rates on student loans are increasing. For all these cuts, what did university students get? Zoom University, of course, congratulations. Um, so education wasn't the only victim, hasn't been the only victim of Kenny's cuts, and as if almost by some sort of sick foreshadowing, the 2020 budget, which again was released pre-COVID, in no uncertain terms, um, showed that healthcare was far from safe from the wave of layoffs and austerity that the UCP was just salivating thinking about. The United Nurses of Alberta predicted layoffs of more than 750 frontline nurses and 400 auxiliary care nurses, and AHS intended to cut up to 2,500 housekeeping, support, laundry, and food service employees. Now, this was before COVID. So <clears throat> when you later come face to face with the global pandemic, you would think that lining your crosshairs up with public health care would be like, how do I put the not something you would do to win favor with the masses? In fact, again, just my opinion, you might even think that it would be a good idea to do the exact opposite of that and invest in healthcare infrastructure and staffing that has been underfunded for decades. But no, of course. In October of last year, the UCP announced the layoffs through privatization of 11,000 public health positions. This would mean that 10 to 16 percent, 10 to 16 percent of Alberta's healthcare positions would be eliminated and then replaced with cheaper private alternatives that have been proven to deliver worse care outcomes for patients. And originally, the UCP promised there would be no layoffs during the pandemic. That was another lie. They quickly changed their tune uh, and said that there would be minimal layoffs. Despite Bills 1 and 32, which ban protesting on essential infrastructure and effectively making picket lines and strikes illegal, respectively, hospital and healthcare workers in Alberta staged a wildcat strike. AHS has since reprimanded 800 of these workers for their participation. So not, to, not content to just attack healthcare workers. The UCP has also taken aim at doctors. Uh, the government recently altered billing codes, uh, resulting in many physicians, especially in rural Alberta, uh, withdrawing certain services such as emergency departments. Um, after failed negotiations with doctors regarding these billing codes, the UCP passed Bill 21, allowing them to cancel. Just We'll just write a little bill to cancel the master agreement with doctors and impose new rules unilaterally. This also uh, removed the arbitration process guaranteed under the old agreement. Uh, much like everything else they've done, this was without consultation, without negotiation, and was at the end of the day, a hissy fit on the part of the US, U, UCP. Uh, it's not only an attack on doctors, but more importantly on their patients. These billing codes are now structured in a way that doctors are incentivized to push patients out of the exam room just to keep their clinics open. It's no surprise that 42% of doctors in Alberta are considering leaving and 98% have no confidence in their health minister's chandrail. So Albertans have grown angrier and angrier at the criminal cuts in the middle of this health emergency 
Uh, like I've mentioned a couple of times, uh, leading Canning to be the most unpopular premier in Canada. Uh, he's leading support from both ends of the political spectrum. Uh, the UCP's response to COVID in general has been abysmal and a major factor in their lack of public support. In the beginning, we saw a series of half measures coupled with a lack of funding to support them. Many workers had the rug pulled out from under them um, and existed in a state of limbo. I'm sure many people in this room right now, I know I was, um, especially those who had not been formally laid off from their jobs. The Alberta Emergency Isolation Benefit um, was harder to get than winning the lottery. CERB had not been rolled out yet. And the entirety of the federal EI system was backlogged to all hell. Like I imagine their servers was like on fire. I don't know anything about computers, but that's in my mind what, what happened, uh, the EI system. So the UCP then flipped and flopped between these half opens and half closes, but more importantly, they never actually mandated a full lockdown. The official Alberta government position has been to do as little as humanly possible to fight COVID. Kenny responded several times saying that uh, lockdowns are a massive invasion on people's fundamental rights and have a massive impact on their personal liberties and their ability to put food on the table. He, however, fails to acknowledge that the back and forth of the government is exactly what has been impacting the ability for Albertans to put food on the table. It's their withholding of vital federal funds for essential and frontline workers, healthcare workers, uh, that's been impacting the ability to put food on the table. Instead, he preached personal responsibility, pleading with Albertans to do the right thing. All this while turning a blind eye to blatant disregard of the restrictions they wanted us all to follow. We saw this with Grace Life Church and several very edgy businesses across the province, such as the Whistle Stop Cafe. Yes, they're facing some reprimand now, but not when it really counted, when they were allowed to run amok in the height of a pandemic. Albertans didn't want them to be fined, they wanted them to be shut down so they could not endanger people's lives. Um, <coughs> not to mention his own breaking of public health guidelines at his little business lunch atop the Sky Palace, looking down at all us plebs. I was quite hilarious watching him try to deflect this media attention to backpedal his way into somehow not breaking the very clear rules that were laid out by his government. So yeah, Kenny, Albertans have been struggling to put food on the table, but it's very clear that it's not something the UCP is worried about as they're atop their ivory tower, the Sky Palace. Um, the latest scandal in a long line is this stage three reopening. Really just like throwing open the floodgates and saying, oh, COVID's over, guys. And for the ruling class, pretty much across the world, it is over. They've been growing impatient with workers fearing for their own safety, not increasing output to line the boss's pockets. For Jason Kenney, for the UCP, for the capitalists, we, us, are the get out of COVID quick plan. It didn't matter what variants develop, how many people get sick, how many people die, as long as we can get up and go to work for them with a smile. We are Kenny's ticket to his Calgary Stampede photo op, despite all of the scientific data that shows this is a horrible idea. The Delta variant is more contagious and presents more severe health outcomes for those infected. It is also more resistant to vaccines, specifically to the single doses of mRNA that this stage three reopening was really based upon. 
It also targets unvaccinated populations more readily, specifically children, in a way that we haven't seen with previous variants. So <coughs> this open for summer, best summer ever BS is completely disconnected from the reality of these variants that epidemiologists have been predicting and warning governments about from the start. And once again, Kenny is gambling with the lives of the working class. He's setting us up for being closed for the fall and the worst winter ever, TM. Um, so Kenny has eroded public health care, public education services in general to give out tax breaks, handouts to the oil industry, uh, to fund a war room, yet another super cringy meme, by the way. Uh, that spends taxpayer dollars to cancel uh, a children's TV show about climate change, uh, to drink with his buddies on his own personal, publicly funded rooftop patio. And Albertans are sick of it. They're sick of the nickel and diming of public parks and campsites, of proposals to open pit coal mine, the mountains and foothills, uh, being told that they are to blame for the crisis in Alberta, that, that, and they should be sick of it because we're not to blame for this government or for capitalism. The effects of COVID will last a generation at the very least, and these impacts will be amplified because COVID didn't hit during uh, the Industrial Revolution or feudal Europe, but because it hit in a period of history marked by capitalism in its absolute death agony, and Alberta is no exception to this. Kenny is not the only politician who bungled the COVID response. Um, across the world, governments and corporations took this wait-and-see attitude. They calculated very carefully just how many workers, just how many of us would be acceptable to just let die, how they could get away without providing adequate support to people forced into unemployment, how little money they could invest in healthcare infrastructure, how soon they could claw back their, their quote-unquote hero pay uh, before the masses really started to fight back. And this will not be forgotten. We were not in this together before COVID, and we sure as hell aren't in it together during COVID. And the last two years have marked a huge shift in the consciousness of the masses. Uh, people are seeing that they're truly a cog in the machine, that while their government officials took lavish Hawaiian vacations, uh, which were not allowed by federal travel laws anyway, uh, we were not allowed to see dying grandparents. Uh, Aloha Gate, as it was dubbed, marked a very clear shift in consciousness in Alberta, I think. And not just from like leftists or on the fence UCP supporters, but their voter base as well. I was casually perusing the Facebooks and Twitters of UCP MLAs, as you do. And I did not find a single supportive comment during that whole thing. Um, <coughs> many Albertans admitted that while they had voted for the UCP in the election, that it was a mistake they would not be repeating. Uh, and somehow, really shockingly, Tracy Allard's defense that her trip to the tropics was a family tradition, uh, didn't, it didn't convince her constituents. It's shocking, I know. Um, Kenny promised this prosperous Alberta, bringing back the Alberta advantage, and in reality what was delivered has been job cuts, rising unemployment, a lack of investment, um, and an Alberta where in 2020 more people moved out of Alberta than moved to Alberta or moved to Canada across all provinces. And whether they left because there's no work or because they're scared of an Americanizing healthcare system, or because they would literally rather move across a country uh, than have their students suffer through this new curriculum. 
I mean, why pick just one reason when there are so many? The bottom line is that a lot of people don't want to be here and they're fed up with the UCP. But people also want to fight. Last year, we saw the first real hit leveled against the UCP in the AUP Wildcat strikes. Um, not only that, but there was wide support for this action in a way that we haven't seen in years. At the Edmonton March for What Matters in 2020, in response to the budget cuts laid out, thousands of public sector workers, you know, real union thug types, teachers, nurses, educational assistants, uh, marched on the legislature demanding action against the cuts. And this was the response before COVID. So imagine the anger after a year of teaching in unsafe, underfunded classrooms when the government couldn't even give enough of a shit to actually contact Trace in schools. And while certain union bureaucrats and parts of the Alberta NDP, they would prefer to keep a lid on things. They want to dissociate from this unrest. At a certain point, the anger of the working class will overflow. And it's not just one attack or another. It's these decades of being told over and over that your sacrifices will somehow pay off. We can look at the teacher strike of 2002, which was the largest labor action in the history of Alberta uh, with over 21,000 participants. Uh, teachers were told <coughs> by their union, essentially, that returning to the classroom after Klein ordered them back to work and by taking a pay cut that has still not been recovered, that they would then save the jobs of their colleagues. This was a slimy lie. <laughs> Those teachers were laid off regardless. Uh, and the province saved a ton of money on their wages. So while the class relations in Alberta have been generally underdeveloped due to this historic uh, economic prosperity, the era has come to a decisive end and it will not be returning. And not even Kenny's cabinet can back him up anymore. This is the best part. Following that Sky Palace debacle, uh, two of his cabinet members publicly called upon him to apologize to Albertans. One of those cabinet ministers also criticized him uh, for claiming it was cancel culture when he was asked about renaming schools in the province so that they don't bear the names of people responsible for residential schools. In uh, April, a quarter of his cabinet, a quarter of his cabinet released a letter openly denouncing and disagreeing with the restrictions rolled out at the time. <coughs> was this reactionary? Yes, but it was also an open denunciation of uh, Kenny's restrictions. Uh, sources said that while Kenny publicly let them off the hook, he was like, oh, there's lots of like freedom of debate. This is good. In private, he was threatening to call a snap election. Now, I think it's pretty obvious that this was an empty threat. It's an empty threat at the time. There's no way in his right mind that Kenny would expose himself like that. But the fact that it was even threatened, allegedly, is an indication of exactly how fractured the UCP is which means that there's no better time to bring down Kenny than now. The working class is practically begging for a way to kick Kenny to the curb. And if the ruling class doesn't start handing down concessions, reforms, take the reins from Kenny, conflict is inevitable. What is needed is class struggle. It is our only line of defense. We cannot be confined to legal channels, regulations, unconstitutional regulations, by the way, such as bills 1, 9, and 32. Uh, despite what trade union bureaucrats and the NDP will try to say, in the pub public sector, workers must strike as a united force against the countless attacks, strike together against any back-to-work legislation. This movement has to then spread to the broader working class, union, non-union, unemployed, youth alike. The NDP has to return to its roots, 
namely as a socialist party, to capture the anger of Albertans. In 2013, the NDP removed the word socialism from its constitution, trying to play to that middle of the road, again, trying to please everybody, and ended up pleasing nobody. Um, the NDP, however, doesn't seem to have actually learned anything from this past experience. They see that they're polling upward, uh, and they see themselves as a government in waiting, but they're on course to repeat the exact same mistakes again. If the NDP doesn't dramatically change course and offer Albertans a real alternative, a real socialist alternative, they're doomed to be this fading blip on the political landscape of the province. Alberta's labor leadership has to mobilize and commit to militant labor action, strikes, solidarity strikes, lockouts, um, work stoppages, by whatever means necessary. We've seen them hit, sit on their hands. We've seen them bite their tongue throughout Kenny's draconian term, while behind them, their workers are begging for direction and leadership. This anger has boiled over, as we saw with the Wildcat. And instead, these workers have been told that their union supports them, but not much else. Now, the role of the unions is not to cheerlead the workers from the sidelines when, you know, oh, they have a cute little idea to fight against the government. Trade unions exist to organize and coordinate our only leverage against Kenny's climb back reforms that have been fought for and paid for by the working class in their blood, their sweat, and their tears. Only an active, organized, and united working class movement based on bold socialist policies is able to fight Jason Kenny. And I will leave it there. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.